Great. All right, guys, we are rolling into another episode of the Candace Owens Show, and I am so pleased to introduce you guys to a man who needs no introductions. He has one of the greatest sounding voices I have ever heard. Sebastian Gorka, welcome to the Candace Owens Show. Greetings. Thank you for having me, Candace. I'm trying to get on your level. I want to sound like that. I want to sound that important and that powerful, and that's why I invited you here, so I can learn some lessons. Cigars. Israel, <laughs> that's the answer. Cigars. I don't smoke cigars. I, I leave that to the men. I don't think women smoking cigars looks good. So I want to start somewhere where, where we haven't actually... I want to introduce you to my audience in a way they've never heard you before. I want to start with your childhood. Mm -hmm. Who is Sebastian Gorka? Who is Gorka before he got into American politics and he started fighting and he was working in the White House? Where are you from? Tell me about your beginnings. Were you rich? Were you poor? Where does it all begin? All right. Well, first things first, I have to commend you. I think most of America owes you a debt of gratitude. You're one of the real freedom fighters out there. And what you're doing, what Dennis, Prager, you, the Candice Owens show, it gives hope for us as uh, patriots. So first things first, thank you, Candice. And congratulations on your recent uh, wedding. Thank you very much. You're rebuilding the special relationship with the UK, and I, <laughs> and I appreciate that. So um, my childhood, uh, my understanding of America, of the fate of Western civilization is embedded in my family history. My parents grew up as children uh, on the, um, under occupation by Nazis in Central Europe. So my parents were born and raised in, the U in uh, Hungary. My uh, father was um, nine years old when World War II erupted. After surviving the devastation of World War II, the communists took over and my father tried to resist that new dictatorship. He was eventually betrayed by a British double agent called Kim Philby, was arrested, tortured, and given a life sentence in a political prison uh, in Hungary at the age of 20. Two years in solitary, two years down a prison coal mine. Uh, he was eventually liberated in 1956 by the freedom fighters that uh, fought the communists for 10 glorious days of liberation. Uh, he escaped from prison and with the 17-year-old daughter of a fellow prison mate, they literally hand in hand crossed a minefield into free Europe, ended up as refugees in Austria and eventually in the UK. They were married. That 17-year-old girl became uh, my father's wife and my mother. I was born and raised in the UK, a free man. But with that understanding that Reagan gave us, that the loss of liberty, the extinction of liberty is always one generation away. So I grew up uh, in a middle-class home. My parents were architects. My mother taught architecture in, in, uh, in London. Um, but as soon as the Iron Wall, the Iron Curtain fell, I felt a tie to the country of my parents. I spoke fluent Hungarian and I moved to Hungary uh, to assist in the transition or the return of that nation to freedom. I worked in the first freely, freely elected conservative government in Budapest for five years and then eventually met an American girl in Europe and, um, and the rest is history. We can talk about what happened, how 9-11 changed my life, uh, but my childhood was as a very blessed young boy in West London, the child of refugees who had dis literally escaped dictatorship, Candace. Did you ever think, and, and, and this is a, a crazy point to start out, but did you ever think that you would be raised by people or your father who was born under Nazi occupation and fast forward to today and you are accused of being a Nazi? <laughs> 
mean, just think about that, right? Uh, the same way that you're supposed to be a white supremacist. White supremacist, right? raised by my grandfather who grew up on a sharecropping farm, yeah. right? Um, and so that's sort of a lunacy of the left that I try to tell Look, people these names mean nothing anymore. Sadly, they don't. Uh, what the left has managed to do, and it's one of the most reprehensible things about identity politics, is that the Democrat Party, which has truly, if you want to see institutionalized anti-Semitism, it has been embraced by the DNC, by the Democrat Party. As long as you have people like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, who are proud in their anti-Semitism, whether it's the, the boycott, divestment, sanction movement, uh, whether it's somebody who says on 9-11, some people did something or call the Jews evil, people who've hypnotized the West. Anti-Semitism has become, um, an infection, a disease on the left. And as you say, words like fascism or Nazism, they have been denuded of any content by the left. When people accuse me of being a Nazi because I work for Donald Trump, which is what they did in the White House, I had one journalist, one journalist alone wrote 42 hit pieces on me while I was in the, in the White House. Well done. Well yeah, it's, it's a good, good I mean, metric. That, that is, yeah. It's a good metric. That's a commitment, right? yeah. yeah that's, that's, that's journalism. Right. <laughs> um, so when, when people uh, attack me for being a fascist simply because I work for somebody who's not Hillary Clinton, then you realize the world is upside down. Right. We, we have a situation today where uh, the most pro-Israeli, pro-Jewish president in modern times, probably since 1948, is in the White House, a man who's most senior advisor is his Jewish son-in-law, a man whose grandchildren are Jewish, and he's the anti-Semite, you're the white nationalist, I'm the fascist. It's saddening. But at the end of the day, look, I, I realized very early on, it was tough on me, mostly tough on my wife and my children when, when they did, did these kinds of things in the press. But I realized one thing very early on, when I was a kid, you asked about my, about my childhood. My parents were very worldly. We would uh, vacation abroad, most often in France. And there was um, a moment, I was seven or eight years old. My father was a, a huge athlete of a man, a real bear of a man, and he liked to swim. And I was sitting on the beach with my GI Joes playing one day. And I remember this, and I will up till my dying day. My father comes out of the ocean after a swim. And I look at him, and I notice something I hadn't really noticed before. And the dumb seven-year-old says, hey, Dad, what are those lines on your wrists? Because he was, he was too young to be wrinkled on his wrists. And without skipping a beat, with no emotion, Candice, he looked at me and he said, oh, that's where the secret police bound my wrists together with wire behind my back so they could hang me from the ceiling of the torture chamber. So when the Huffington Post, when the Daily Beast say, I'm a fascist and a Nazi, I say, bring it. They're just words. Mm. You don't get to hang me from the ceiling of a torture taint chamber like my dad. So bring it because we will win. You are fueled by hatred. The left today is fueled by hatred. We on the right as conservatives are fueled by love, love of country, love of liberty, love of our founding principles. So at the end of the day, I'm good with it, Candace. I say the same thing. I feel remarkably privileged because I get that question all the time. How do you put up with it? How do you deal with this? And I say you go just, just a couple of generations ago and you've got my grandfather picking cotton right. and laying out tobacco to dry on a sharecropping farm. I have to deal with the Daily Beast calling me a black white supremacist. I mean, right. it's almost, it's, um, I'm, I'm privileged. That's a lap of luxury. If that's the worst thing I have to deal with as a black conservative today, mm. then I'm remarkably pri privileged. Right, but not only that, and this is, 
also a imp- very important metric. It is a sign that you are winning. Mm. When I've seen all the videos of your, your debates when you're lecturing, they, they never come close because they cannot beat you on the merits of the case. Well, they what? can't debate. That's they can't debate. They just name call. They just say, you're a house Negro, you're an Uncle Tom, Uncle you're Tom, this. Right. And, and then I say, okay, well, explain to me why black America should, be, should, should want more welfareism. Explain to me why socialism works. Socialism doesn't work. Welfareism has been proven to be a, a complete disaster since its inception for black America in, in the 1960s. So they just do the name calling. Yeah. And they hope, and this is the sad thing, because I say they hope it'll work. But in, in some cases, it does. We see that. People well, just read headlines and they accept it right. as the truth without even thinking beyond the headline. But it's not about thinking. I had a caller on my show yesterday on America First. Uh, you know, I sometimes get liberals and I, I want to debate them. So I'll, I'll let them, uh, I'll connect with them. And this individual was clearly black. And he said, everything you're saying about the economy and uh, Donald Trump is a lie. It's a lie. And it was as if there was some Vulcan mind melt. On the top of my prep sheet for that day was an article from the Washington Post. Very rare that I have the Washington Post in my show prep. And the headline was, largest growth in jobs in America is for black Americans. Mm. And I read the headline to the caller from the Washington Post. And he said, that's just fake news. And I said, oh, so now the Washington Post is fake news. There is no logic. There is no analysis. As you said, it's just mudslinging. We ha- Look, what you are doing is pushing back on the indoctrination. It is shocking that the Victims of Communism Foundation in its last poll found that 52% of millennials would prefer to live in a socialist or communist America. That is frightening given the fact that 100 million people died in the last century as a result of communism as a result of socialism. But here's the good news. Um, you know Austin Fleckus, you must know. I do, of right. course. So one of my favorite channels is Fleckus Talks. This is the man who looks like a millennial. He's got the big beard. He's got the football jersey. And he goes into these crazy places, these Antifa rallies, these impeachment rallies with his little camera, his wooden spoon and his microphone. And you've got to watch the duration of his debate because they think he's one of them. And he just asks totally neutral questions. And by question three, that's it. They're out of talking points. There's nothing left. So the good point is the indoctrination is scary and it's broad, but it is yay deep, Candice. It is so superficial that if we bring the facts, not just the facts, it's got to be personal experience, your experience, your experience of being, you know, apolitical. I've heard the whole story. And then suddenly you woke up and you realize, what are they saying about Donald Trump? He wasn't a racist until he became president. How did that happen? Any, anybody so, can play the game, but I am telling you, you grew up, you listen to hip-hop music. Everybody <laughs> wanted, wanted to be, be Trump. Donald Trump. That was right. it. But Jay-Z, right. Beyonce, Mar-a-Lago, it was in everybody's songs. Right. Everybody was cool. Then he right. ran for president. It was like, forget everything we've said for the last two decades. He's, he's an avowed racist. Right. And I was just like, since when? Right. You know, Diddy, Puff Daddy, everybody was going to his parties. Um, and everybody loved him because he was the idea of the American dream of wealth. Yeah, right. yeah, of exorbitant wealth. And he was the man. And then he ran for president. And I just said to myself, how can we be so foolish just accept that narrative? Yeah. And to see people that are so brainwashed and, and they stick to that narrative. And I'll tell you something funny about what you say about this not being a very deep narrative. Uh, so I came across Fleckas because he, unbeknownst to me, was outside of one of my talks at a university. Oh, okay. So I was with Charlie Kirk. And and a mob, I mean, 200 kids at the university had showed up. They had police barriers to protest. To protest. Okay. So Fleckus talked, he went around and he said, very simple, neutral question. Yeah. What are you here protesting? <laughs> right. Said, and, and the kids said, uh, Charlie Kirk and Candace Owens. 
well, what, do you, what specifically are you protesting? And uh, racism and white supremacy. And he said, do you, so you think Candace Owens is a white supremacist? And then the kid would go, well, no. <laughs> and it, it would just fall it just apart for them. It just, it just crumbles. crumbles. Right. So there's something about the mob, right? Where if you get a bunch of people together, right. they can be proactively stupid together, right? But when you peel them out one by one and go, hey, what are you doing here? This is fascinating. <laughs> so this is really important. So when I was in the White House, and both my, my wife and I, we were political appointees. I was deputy assistant to the president for strategy. My wife had a senior position at DHS. And one day, my wife is driving home from DHS headquarters, and she's a totally non-combative individual. She does, she's learned a little bit from me, but her first you know, reaction would always be to avoid any kind of conflict. And she sees a bunch of kids with banners protesting outside a university in North DC. And she's slowing down in the traffic and she sees the signs. She goes, fire Gorka the effing Nazi. And it's photographs of me. And my wife, I just, I was shocked when she did this. She was on the phone with my daughter at the time and she said, they're protesting daddy. She stops the car, gets up and walks over to them. And, and she says, you know all that stuff on the banner? That's all lies. It's been debunked by Jewish authors who know that Sebastian Gorka is the most pro-Israeli, pro-Jewish person you could find. And as soon as, and, she, and then she said, oh, and I happen to be his wife. As soon as she challenged them, it just melted away. This is what we have to remember. This is the, 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 the home field advantage of the left. There is no massive conspiracy. Okay, we have a propensity on the right to get into kind of tinfoil hat territory. Mm. There's a lot of conspiracy theorists out there and it's, it's bad for our brand and it's bad for critical thought. You know, uh, uh, um, uh, Obama isn't sitting in a cave somewhere with a joystick controlling the left or, or George Soros. Yes, he's rich. Yes, he's spending to, you know, get people uh, elected, but there isn't some master plan. What there is, and I learned this from some very wise advisors I had when I was in the White House, is a mob mentality. Mm. It's like the Borg from Star Trek. It is a hive mind. And if they get the script, this shallow narrative, they will come to protest you. They'll come to protest uh, Charlie. But as soon as one person innocently says, okay, so, so how exactly is she a white supremacist? Uh, how is the fact that, that Sebastian Gorka's family suffered under fascism? How does that make him a Nazi? And then it, it's just, it melts. It's like the witch from the Wizard of Oz right. just melts away. So th that's the good news. The bad news is, and this is what I write about in my, my new book, The War for America's Soul, they've been doing this for 40 years. This didn't come out of nowhere. I mean, th it's not an accident that Hillary Clinton interned with Saul Alinsky. In my new book, I have an appendix, which is her thesis from college that she wrote on, on Saul Alinsky when she worked for Saul Alinsky. The only photograph, check it, the only photograph you can find of Obama, constitutional lawyer, teaching law, the only photograph you can find on the internet is him in front of a chalkboard. What's he, what's he drawing? He's diagramming out Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. Right. This, isn't, this isn't a massive conspiracy. It's what they called the march through the institutions. And they've been building for 60 years. I do a lot of conservative speaking, just like you do. And, and a lot of places people ask me, how did we get here? How did we get here that millennials want to vote in Bernie Sanders? And I say, you want to know who's responsible? I got some bad news for you. Look in the mirror. 
1968, they wanted to take over this country. You saw it with the, the Weather Underground Terrorist Organization, the Students for a Democratic Society, Bernadine Dorn, Bill Ayers. They tried to take over America. There was, they, these people detonated bombs at the State Department, at the Pentagon. We forget this. You know, privileged white Americans were trying to create a Marxist revolution. What happened? Totally fizzled out. I mean, this is the land of the F-150 and, you know, 70-ounce stakes. We're not, we're not going to become communists in a revolution. So what did they do? When they failed, they didn't say, oh, well, I'm going to go back to my daddy's trust fund or I'm going to become a poet or a, or a farmer. They had read their Lenin. They'd read their Stalin. They'd read their Mao. They'd read their Hitler. What did all of these guys say? Give me their children and I will own their future. Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers, after being terrorists, became what? Tenured university professors. And what did we do on the right? We bloody let them. So you want to know why 52% of millennials think communism's a cool thing? Because we let them take over education, college, the media. It's time. And that's why Turning Point USA, PragerU, what you do, you do is so absolutely crucial. It's, re it's reversing the indoctrination. Yes. And, I, and I say, look, I, I, I was on the left. I, I thought I had to be a liberal because I was black. If you had asked me, think about this. This is crazy. Compared, How about, racist is that? Think about this. If you had asked me five years ago, I would have said I was a liberal. I cried when Obama won. And, and, and then I had this mass awakening and I realized that we are literally voting black people into poverty. We, we, nothing has changed. For and 60 years. For 60 years, nothing has changed. And they right. use the same tactics. They haven't even updated the tactics. And, and now- They just keep repeating it. All we're gonna do is just call the other side racist. More racist. This is racism but it's and worse. nobody pauses to think. But worse than that, now it's open racism with their own supporters. When Ayanna Presley says, if you've got black skin, you better have a black voice. And I'm like, what if what does that mean? Right. What, what does it that mean? mean? It means what do they do? They all block me. I go, what does that mean? And this is how you know they're, they're ultimate cowards because they love right. saying that. This is what black people have to think. But when you challenge them and you say, get in the room, I'll have a debate with you. No, no one way. wants to do it. Right. AOC has me blocked. You know, Ayanna, I think Ayanna Presley as well. Congratulations. Yeah, she blocked me. She blocked me because I just kept calling her out because I'm sick and tired of black people being used like pawns every election cycle. That's what drives me crazy. They're not, they're not even pretending to make the communities better anymore. They just call the other person racist. Right. It's fear tactics. It's saying, I know what scares you, the idea right. of racism and slavery. So we're going to drum up that rhetoric. And they lie. And the audacity of the lies, and, and you're speaking about these people on campus that don't know what they're talking about. I had a, a young black girl who was outside of one of my events and she was like, she was holding a poster and it was a quote I never said. <laughs> she told, it was a quote uh -huh. that said, Candace Owens, and it said, racism does not exist because I was never a slave. This is amazing. So they excerpt my uh, CPAC speech, made a whole different sentence, yep. right? So I, I've never once ever said racism does not exist, ever. I said that racism is not an issue that is confronting black America today. There's, by the way, there's always gonna be racists because there's always gonna be dumb people. There's gonna right. be people that hate white people. There's right. gonna be people that hate black people, people that hate Hungarians, people that hate gay people. So the idea that you're gonna deplete hate right. is foolish, right? Is it preventing me as a black American from getting from point A to point B in this society? The answer is no. no. What is preventing me as a black person from getting from point A to point B? Well, I think liberal policies. I think the, the welfare system. I think the breakdown of the family. Right. I think I want black fathers in the home. I say all this in a speech and they excerpt and I say, and by the way, I don't want to talk about slavery because I've never been a slave in this country. I want to talk about the things that I've experienced while I've been alive in this country. Right. So that Took means the there's no racism away. because I wasn't yeah. a slave. <laughs> right. Just, right. I mean, and it's, and you've got this girl and she was shaking with the post and I walked, walked up to her and I said, you know, thank you for coming. I've never said that quote. 
And I said, did, did you actually go watch the speech of what I said at CSPAC? And she was just shaking and she was so, she was so scared. And I said, well, I'd love to invite you into the speech to, to actually see what I'm about. I'd love to get you involved. And you know, she declined. And then afterwards she said to the press that I was quite nice to her, but that's the uphill battle. Yes. Is they're just reading the headlines. They're not actually going to hear what Candace Owens actually thinks, right? Look, I, I get asked a lot of uh, career advice from people who are just starting off, especially in the national security field or the media field. Uh, and it's, it's quite pathetic that I'd say to them, whatever you want to be, whether you want to be a counterterrorism expert, whether you want to have a radio show, whether you want to be a brain surgeon, I'll give you one piece of advice, all of you. Very simple. Read books. How many people under the age of 50 set aside an hour a day, switch off the phone, switch off the computer and actually read or get to know something from a primary source. You know, if you look at the, the, the duration of how people get information, according to the latest statistics this week, the majority of millennials get their information from YouTube, the majority. What's the average time people watch videos on YouTube between three and six minutes? I was gonna say three minutes. Three to six minutes is the average. If, you, if, if somebody watches your clip and it's six minutes long, you're, do, you're doing very, very well on YouTube. So you're supposed to understand something like the economy, race relations, the history of America, or whether ISIS is a threat in a three-minute video. It's not going to happen. But that's what we have to fight, and that's what you're doing every day. Well, I think that the younger people actually don't even have the attention span, and that attention span is being broken up by social media. And social media was actually designed yes. in that way. So um, my husband told me that. He said that when you that pull measure that you have to refresh, they actually were thinking when they built that of slot machines in a casino, right? Yeah, so it's, it's a dopamine it's hit. You're waiting dopamine, for the next Yeah, the right. next thing to happen, next which tip. is fascinating to consider. So to get somebody to sit down, like you said, and, and to have that focus and that attention span, it's really, really hard for millennials mm -hmm. and the age under. And that's a part of the uphill climb yes. that, that we're facing today. But what are you seeing? I need to know what are you seeing in the black community in America? Because if you look at the figures, there's something happening. Oh, it's cracking. Something happening. It's cracking. And, right. and, and look, love me or hate me, you feel something, right? And, and that's enough <laughs> for me. If you hate Candace Owens, you feel something. Right. The problem was nobody was feeling anything. We were just this monolith that we were just, you know, like sheep just walking to the slaughter and no one really had the audacity to say something and this is why I credit Kanye West so much because I had kind of made you know a, a lot of things happen in the political realm but the political realm wasn't talking to the cultural realm this was a major problem yes. right uh, Andrew Breitbart Andrew politics Breitbart. is downstream from culture and black America has been so seized culturally because of the breakdown of the family remove mom and dad from the home where do the, where do the black boys and the black girls go when you don't have a mom and dad telling you what's right and what's wrong hip-hop Jay-Z and Beyonce become mom and dad. Kanye West and Kim become mom and dad, right? You care what they say. What is T.I. saying? That's what I should be following. So that conversation had to be, for Kanye to just tweet those seven words, I love the way Candace Owens thinks. Well, and, and the photograph. The photograph of you, Charlie, and Kanye, that, that was a pivotal moment in right. our cultural history. Right, and then they, they're talking about me, and they still, they talk trash about me every day. Great, you know, I'm saying absolutely fabulous. And a lot of them are just starting to see a different angle, and you're seeing that happening with, like, Charlemagne the God, um, who has one of the most successful hip-hop radio stations. He's part of that, The Breakfast Club. Uh, he and I talk actually quite frequently, and, and look, we don't agree on everything, but he agrees that something's wrong here, right? And and he's That's had the stop. audacity to challenge Elizabeth Warren, because they all go through the show. That was yeah. the famous one where Hillary Clinton said, uh, 
hot sauce, hot sauce in her bag, right? When they right. said, what's something you carry in your bag? And she said, hot sauce. Yeah, right. The ultimate pander to black America. Totally. You do not have hot sauce in your bag, Hillary Clinton. You think it's a, a, a clever playoff of Beyonce's song. Um, but to see them start to challenge, I've never seen that before in the hip hop community. So there's an awakening happening. But the struggle is, is that they don't want to get behind Trump because he's been so... Uh, falsely branded as a racist, and they don't have the audacity to say, you know what, none of this narrative really adds up or makes sense. He's been in office for two years. How has Donald Trump hurt black America? It's a very straightforward question. They have no answer. There is no answer to the question. How has, has, has black America been negatively impacted by Donald J. Trump? Right. There is no answer to that question. I can tell you how CNN has negatively impacted black American minds. I can tell you how MSNBC has negatively impacted black American minds. I can tell you how when someone looks at you and tells you you can't, you won't. And that's been a major problem in black America. We're constantly told we can't before we even get out of bed and try. Yeah. You can't because of the color of your skin. You can't because of institutionalized racism. You can't because white supremacy is back. You can't because of white nationalism. Start telling black kids they can. It's actually the opposite of what America was founded on. Because what you're saying, the whole, now that you have to be rated based upon your victim status, who has the higher victim status than somebody else based upon skin color, accent, where there were, you know, sexual preference. That's the opposite of manifest destiny, of anything is possible. As soon as you start thinking in terms of categories, as soon as you're spoken to as a victim, as you said, you're just gonna, you're gonna self-shut down avenues. You're gonna, you're gonna lock doors that you would have said, I'm gonna blow right through because that I am not a victim. So perhaps that's the way to approach this, that this is, this is a self-limiting ideology that destroys your future, which is what, they, they just want dependency. All they want is utter dependency on the elite and on the state, and, and we have to break it. That's, well, that's why I call the left drug dealers and, and what the drug that they've been selling to the black community as crack cocaine is victimhood. Yes. And, 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 and now they're dependent on it. They constantly they feed the stories, right? There's tons of uh, bad incidents that can happen with police officers that happen to white men, that happen to Hispanic men. There are no headlines about them, no. right? We know that by rate, white men and Hispanic men are gunned down unarmed at a higher rate than black American right. men. What are the names of them? Anybody know an Hispanic American no hero. or, no or a Hispanic, white American right. man that's been gunned down unarmed by a police officer? No. Why is that? Why is it, are, are they only showing us these moments? Because it's like Plato's allegory of the cave. Mm -hmm. They are creating a reality for black Americans, and black Americans have no idea what's just around the corner from it. If you step aside and say, you know what, no thank you. Victimhood is cancer. You want to know what it kills? Your future. I never thought we'd get to Plato. That's very impressive. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm quite into that, yeah. <laughs> I, like to, I like to read into all of that stuff because you do have to study philosophy and, and of, of course, I mean, Saul Alinsky in, in many ways, it is, it kind of is a, it grows off of a, a type of philosophy, yes. right? Um, and it's all rooted in something and it's really interesting to see and you have to understand what the left is doing if you're going to actually make an attempt to reverse it. Right. And, and the big contribution that, that Alinsky made and, you know, if, if your viewers you know, haven't done so, you just need to read Rules for Radicals. Mm. It is dated because it comes out of the 50s and 60s. But what Saul Alinsky did is he gave a plan. And, and the revolutionary thing is he said, ignore what Mao and Lenin and everybody else tried to do, which is to change the system from the outside. It's too tough. The establishment mm. is too strong. And he said, you've got to defeat it from the inside. And that's when things started to work, when they became high school teachers, when they took their philosophy into Hollywood, into the media, into the colleges, 
that's when it all began. There was no resistance on the inside. And that's how we are where we are today. I want to talk to you about um, masculinity because this mm -hmm. is something that I am just observing the 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 cultural assassination of masculinity. Yeah. It's no longer cool to be a man. It's no longer cool uh, if, unless you have you, you have to be more effeminate. You need to be acting more like women or there's something wrong with you. Yeah. And that scares me because when you remove strong men from a society, when you remove the idea of masculinity, it contributes to so many other things. First and foremost, to break down a family, um, which I think is promoted by, by this radicalized feminism that we're seeing here. Um, and... Uh, I just wanted to know what your opinion is on that and how it's going to impact America if we become a country of weak men. First things first, we, we, we have to um, be careful not to judge America on, in, uh, on uh, the bubbles that we frequent. That's okay? right. So Los Angeles, Washington, D.C. is not America. Uh, before I joined the White House, I was traveling 20,000 miles a month uh, lecturing uh, the FBI and, and uh, the U.S. military on the threat of ISIS. I got to see America. I knew something was happening. When I got outside of Georgetown, the only yard signs I would see in America were Trump. There would be no Hillary yard signs outside of Adams Morgan. You get outside of you know, the bubble and you see a different kind of America. Mm. That's an America where the masculinity uh, that we all know deep down is intrinsic to the male sex, I think is very safe. Um, I was traveling with my, um, my wife and my daughter at the weekend, and I won't say where I was, but, but after about 20 minutes, I said to my daughter, I haven't seen one manly man in the last 20 minutes where we are. Everybody had their silly beanie hats, everybody had their short pants and their you know, trainers on. And I thought, and, and suddenly something came to me because I saw somebody, I said, you know what I find real hope? And tell me if I'm wrong, I hope I'm not wrong. I think the idea of men being men is still potentially alive in the black community. The idea, you know, the metrosexual, I don't think is something that's gonna go down well. We have a problem with fathers not being there and women depending on the state, but the idea that if you are in a family, the role of the male is to provide and to protect, that's as it should be. Gorka, you are so right. Can I just tell you, I said this to someone, uh, I think it was Charlamagne the God, we were talking about how Mario Lopez got attacked for coming on my show when he just said something very simple, which is that it's which dangerous. Which he never should have apologized for. He shouldn't have apologized ever. for it. Absolutely, I agree. When he said it's dangerous when you start telling children they can pick their gender. Right. And what I said is that if there is a, a black child that goes home and says, hey mom, hey dad, today I went to school and <laughs> I was allowed to pick my gender, you are going to see black parents flooding into that elementary school and that policy right. will be reversed tomorrow. That is something that is not going to be tried in the black community. Right. I mean, it's, and, and I actually think that that's, um, it's almost a safety net that we have. Yes. With, with a lot I, I think, of this I think there's a certain kind of a genetic indoctrination. There's a yeah. kind of safety barrier right. that at least in one community, and it's not a white community, right. there is a healthy attitude to what being a man is. If the family is intact in the black community, the man will be providing and the man will be protecting. And God bless every single man. Because as far as I'm concerned, that's our job, right? right. I, I don't care. A, a man is a man. A woman is a woman. Right. I'm never going to apologize for that. A woman is 
nurturing, a woman cares, a woman educates. If they want a job, I get it, that's fine. But at the end of the day, the ultimate guarantor of that family's safety and security is the man. It's been like that for about, you know, 10,000 years. There's right. a reason. Right, and it's the yin and the yang. You need both. Yes. And, and and that's why people make you think that there's something weak about being someone that wants to raise their children, have, having that natural pull to nurture your children and to raise your children. Uh, feminism is teaching women that that's wrong. You should ask, want more. Ask, you should ask want... any woman at the, in the, on, at the age of 50 that, that shows that kind of feminist, you know, the 1970s, I'm burning my bra, and went all out on that. Ask them, are they happy at the end of the day? If they're not in a loving relationship where the man has a masculine role, where the woman has a feminine role, you know the answer to that. Right. The answer is they won't be happy. So what? So what's your new book about? What's the title? So the, the title is The War for America's Soul. Um, the first book that helped me get into the White House was Defeating Jihad. That's my plan on how to beat ISIS. Then we had, uh, after I left the White House, I wrote Why We Fight. There's a little bit about my experience in the White House working for the president. And now, because of 2020, I had to sit down and, and just, number one, what we have just discussed. If you haven't read it, my friends, you need to buy Andrew Breitbart's book, Righteous Indignation. It is the most important book I have read in the last decade, and specifically chapter six. And I built my book on this one chapter in Andrew's book. In chapter six, Andrew maps out how the left became so powerful in America and the world. He goes back to 19, uh, 1930s Germany. He maps out the rise of the Frankfurt School, uh, Alinsky, what happened in Colombia, and then on into the Democrat Party. And it's not a conspiracy theory, it's names. It's dates, it's institutions. And I wanted to give that a, 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 a breathe life back into what Andrew helped me to understand. So I, I've written a book on number one, what has happened in America. And I open with a, a personal story of what happened to me at my daughter's graduation. My, my daughter just graduated from college and um, it was an eye-opening experience for me. It, it's a pretty liberal college, as most of them are. And I didn't want to create a, 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 a scene. I'm recognizable, so my, my wife and my mother-in-law and my sister-in-law sat amongst everybody else, and we waited for the ceremony, and I removed myself. I sat hidden under a tree, somewhere where I could see my daughter, so I didn't want, want to raise attention. Funnily enough, halfway through the ceremony, some cops come up to me, and I think, oh no, what now? Um, and they wanted, they wanted selfies. They, they, you know, they recognized me and they wanted selfies. And they start telling me stories about what happened to my daughter. My daughter had been um, attacked uh, anonymously in the college three weeks before the graduation because of her affiliation with an organization uh, that bears the name the Churchill Institute, which researches and celebrates Western civilization. And because of that and her last name, people put uh, anonymous posters all over campus saying, this is the face of white supremacy. Because, because you stand up for the civilization in which you are living, mm. and because your father worked for Donald Trump, she has to be attacked on Facebook and with these posters. And, and I didn't want to create any additional, uh, you know, this was her day, it's for her to celebrate. The book starts with the story of what happened at the end of that celebration. So everybody gets their certificates. It's a beautiful day. We're in the courtyard, this beautiful uh, old uh, college. 
And I decided, okay, now I'm going to walk back to my family and congratulate my daughter. As I'm walking, this slip of a girl, she must have been 90 pounds dripping wet, comes up to me. She's not one of the students. She's not wearing a gown, so she's either a sister or whatever. And she says to me, she walks right up to me, puts out her hand. She says, are you Sebastian Gorka? Are you the Sebastian Gorka that worked in the White House for Donald Trump? And I smiled and I shook her hand and said, yes, that's me. Then she said, F off, you Nazi. So brave. In front of witnesses at a graduation. So brave. Kind of took me aback. Look, I'm, I'm six foot four. I'm 260 pounds. I used to play rugby. I'm not a small dude. <laughs> and I kind of stood there and I've been called lots of things. And then I decided to follow her. And I, she, of course, she, you know, scarpered. I walked up to her and she was clearly there with her mother and her grandmother. And I said to her, who the hell do you think you are to call me what you just called me? My parents suffered under real fascists and Nazis. Who do you think you are to use the language you used with me? And of course, no response, no response. So that's where my book opens. What has the left wrought is the chapter. And that's what they've wrought, that a 19-year-old girl who's less than 100 pounds is so completely brainwashed that she's been given a script and she's going to do that. Mm. Then I map out how we got there. Alinsky, the Frankfurt School, everything I learned from the great Andrew Breitbart. Um, then there's a chapter. I don't read autobiographies, uh, but I read one in the last 10 years and it's J.D. Vance's The Hillbilly Elegy. That opened my eyes. And I used J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy to explain to my readers, you know why Donald Trump is president? Because both, both the Democrats and the Republicans betrayed America. That's correct. I said it in the White House. I said it since I left the White House. Donald J. Trump became president despite the GOP, not thanks to the GOP. We've had 40 years of being betrayed. The idea that most of our stuff that we buy is made in China, that's because Henry Kissinger told Nixon, China's going to be a superpower. We might as well just deal with it. Why don't you go to China and make nice with them? I mean, the, the idea that, that what Steve Bannon calls the managed uh, collapse, that the managed, um, the managed decline was the only option America had. The most powerful nation on God's earth and the elite said, well, we're screwed. China will take over. Mm -hmm. And for 30 years, they've been facilitating. I mean, Google, Google today won't work with the Defense Department, but is helping communist China censor the internet from in front of its citizens. That's why Donald Trump was elected president. So I explain um, the, the, the betrayal of American uh, uh, society. And then with a couple of fascinating interviews with uh, one of my favorite people in the world today, that's uh, Victor Davis Hanson and Lord Conrad Black. I talk about why it has to be Donald Trump that opens the window to the salvation of the Republic. And then um, I end with an interview with the president that we did in the Oval this year. And just it's just a cri de coeur. It's a, it's a, a battle cry that if, if you thought 2016 was important, 2020 is much more important. Donald Trump opened a window. And yes, he's the most powerful man in the world but he's only one man. And if you care for your individual liberty, it's not a joke. I was made fun of at CPAC by the, the mainstream fake news industrial complex because I said, you know what? AOC is coming after your cheeseburgers. 
She's coming after your cheeseburgers, which is something not even Stalin would have imagined trying to do. And now, three months later, what happens? Bloomberg says, maybe Gorka was right. Right? The, <laughs> right. right? Well, you've seen it on the debate stage. Right. Farming of right. beef. It's, oh, you've you got to stop eating beef. It's not a joke. Cows fart too much. We've got to save Mother Earth. Gaia must be worshipped. You don't get to have a pickup truck. You don't get to fly on a plane because we, we can change the weather. Mm. So 2020 is is... Everybody says, oh, this is the most important election in our, in our lifetime. Yeah, this time, it really is. Right. I 100% agree. Well, we wrap up every episode by allowing you to leave a voice message for the world, right? <laughs> so you're going to look into that camera, okay. and we're going to put two minutes on the clock, and you have to say something that's going to fall on the ears of every single person in the world because they all watch my show. I know they do. Are you ready? I am. On your mark, get set world, I give you Mr. Sebastian Gorka. Never ever give up, never give in. This nation was built on the backs of people who had courage. There is a man in the White House right now who has given up everything for you. We owe it to him to support this vision of making America great again. If you're afraid of posting something on social media, don't be. The stakes are too high. Stand up for the truth, call out the lies, call out the insanity of the political correctness, because it's not just about you. It's not just about you being safe. It's about your children. It's about our children's children. We are and always have been the greatest nation on earth. The only nation that lost 600,000 of its citizens in a war to end slavery. That's who we are. So, as my law enforcement friends say, keep your head on a swivel, watch your stick, six, stay frosty, never give up, never give in, because you know he won't. I'm Sebastian Gorka. Follow me on Twitter at Seb Gorka, S-E-B-G-O-R-K-A. <laughs> I love that. That was awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. That wraps it. That's really pleasure. good. I can't wait to read your book. Thank you guys for watching the latest episode of The Candace Owens Show. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. As many of you guys already know, PragerU is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, which means we need your help to keep all of our content free to the public. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation today. I would really appreciate your support.